Are there examples of a U.S. government conspiracy that were exposed? Why is the state more determined to defend capitalism as opposed to democracy? How did business leaders in the 70s alter the flow of power from the have-nots to the haves? Do conspiracies rise out of conscious evil or a need to assert the dominance of class power? On the Global Research News Hour this week, we hear a special speech given by the prominent lecturer Michael Parenti exploring the relationship between conspiracy and the larger political economy context. On this week's program, Conspiracy and Class Power, a talk by Michael Parenti. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 20th, 2020. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. While there is much talk of the coronavirus placing immense strain on an underfunded NHS, the health service is already creaking, and people's immune systems are already strongly compromised due to what Mason outlines. But do we see a lockdown on the activities of the global agrochemical conglomerates? Not at all. We see governments and public health bodies working hand-in-glove with the agrochemicals manufacturers to ensure business as usual. That comes from the headline, Crisis, What Crisis? Hypocrisy and the Public Health in the UK, by Rosemary Mason and Colin Todd Hunter, posted November 18th. Marketic suggested that Biden would attempt to rejoin many of the international treaties and organizations that the Trump administration had undermined or pulled out of, including NATO and the Paris Climate Agreement. Quote, I expect the prevailing direction of U.S. foreign policy over these last decades to continue. More lawless bombing and killing multiple countries under the cover of limited engagement. Continuing genocidal sanctions against countries like Iran and Venezuela, ongoing treatment of Latin America as an American fiefdom, and militarism and conflict continuing to be the dominant organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy rather than, say, cooperation and stopping climate change, he added. Independent journalist Caitlin Johnstone recently mockingly wrote that Biden will have, quote, the most diverse intersectional cabinet of mass murderers ever assembled, unquote. 
If representation is important, it is because it helps assure the people from all walks of life will have a seat at the negotiating table. However, judging by Biden's wealthy picks, it appears that yet again, no one will be representing the great majority of working class Americans. That comes from the article, Meet the Filthy Rich War Hawks that Make Up Biden's New Foreign Policy Team, by Alan McLeod. Posted November 18th, originally published at Mint Press News. All in all, there are many reasons to suspect that continued lockdowns, social distancing, and mask mandates are completely unnecessary and will not significantly alter the course of this pandemic illness or the final death count. And, with regard to universal PCR testing, where individuals are tested every two weeks or even more frequently, whether they have symptoms or not, this is clearly a pointless effort that yields useless data. It's just a tool to spread fear, which in turn allows for the rapid implementation of the totalitarian control mechanisms required to pull off the Great Reset. Fortunately, more and more people are now starting to see through this plot. About 45,000 scientists and doctors worldwide have already signed the Great Barrington Declaration, which calls for the end to all lockdowns and implementation of a herd immunity approach to the pandemic, meaning governments should allow people who are not at significant risk of serious COVID-19 illness to go back to normal life as the lockdown approach is having a devastating effect on public health, far worse than the virus itself. That comes from the article, Why COVID-19 Testing is a Tragic Waste, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted November 18th, originally published on the Mercola website. Its trade deals with other countries are facing a wave of criticism, something difficult for Beijing to deal with and counteract. No, this does not mean collapse is imminent, but it does suggest that events could take place that the party may find threatening. For instance, an incident that ignites a surge of nationalism on the streets that sees the party hesitant and weak in its response, or a naval clash in the South China Sea. Neither scenario can be discounted. China's accomplishments, not least economic growth and combating COVID, must be applauded, but on the streets of Beijing, there is little indication of celebration. That comes from the article, The Decline of the U.S. Does Not Mean Plain Sailing for China, by Tom Clifford, posted November 18th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Dominant in the mainstream media these days is an increasing emphasis on the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist. 
They are typically used in discourse to explain and debunk insistent curiosity about prominent beliefs in society which make an elite element within society nervous. The November 22, 1963 incident, which witnessed the death of a president in Dallas, was the one that cut right through the soul of America, a crime which, they say, was the result of a conspiracy involving elements of the U.S. government, explained instead that it was all the work of a lone gunman. These and many other crimes are the topic of a conversation given in 1993 by Michael Parenti. The speech maps out the internal structure of the modern state as a predictor of the actions of power on the world stage. He outlines the history of the 1970s and 80s and the crimes of that era, and he warns of the use of this kind of deception as a justification for war. This particular presentation had been lost for several years until a copy was found in the possession of a listener. We'll bring you a portion of that speech on today's program. Michael Parenti is an internationally known author and lecturer. He received his Ph.D. in political science from Yale in 1962 and is one of the nation's leading progressive political thinkers. His highly informative and entertaining books and talks have reached a wide range of audiences in North America and abroad. His books include Democracy for the Few, To Super Patriotism, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, History is Mystery, and Contrary Notions. So here's Michael Parenti here on the Global Research News Hour. The title of the talk is Conspiracy and Class Power, and the key word in that title is the and. That is, what you're getting on the left lately is a debate in which people are saying, we mustn't look at conspiracy, we've got to look at the broader uh, institutional systems. That's an argument being made by Alexander Coburn, Noam Chomsky, Chip Berlay, uh, any number of people. And I think it's an incorrect argument that it's not conspiracy... It's not conspiracy or class power, it's conspiracy and class power. And I'm not going to talk about any specific conspiracies in any detail. I want to talk about the relationship of conspiracy to the larger political economic context of of the system. I want to start off by talking about that political economic system, and I think it can be approached in three basic ways. First, you can look at the system as a conservative celebration. We've had 12 years of that, as you know. How wonderful our free market society is and how much more wonderful it would be if it were not for meddlesome government regulations and the demands of undeserving uh, low-income groups that feed out of the public trough. That's the conservative celebration. The second approach is a liberal complaint about how some of our priorities are all wrong how there are serious problems that represent aberrant departures from what is otherwise a basically good system. That would be the Bill Clinton approach, perhaps. And then the third approach you might call a radical analysis. And that sees ecological crises 
and military interventions and the national security state and homelessness and poverty and an inequitable tax system and undemocratic social institutions uh, such as the corporate-owned media. It sees these things not as aberrant outcomes of a basically rational system, but as rational outcomes of a system whose central goal is the accumulation of wealth and power for a privileged class. That is, it's not... <clears throat> But Tell Ullman is right that these things must all be looked at dialectically. That is, they must be looked at as part of a context of power and interest that is systemic. And you could look at race, you could look at gender, and you could look at class itself undialectically. Just look at it as uh, an income bracket or whatever else. But what I'm talking about today is not class, but class power. The class power system, which is something more and something else. If you take that third perspective of a radical analysis, if you move from a conservative celebration or a liberal complaint to a radical analysis, and you cross an invisible line, and you will be labeled in mainstream circles as a conspiracy theorist, or a Marxist, or even a paranoiac, terms which some people treat as coterminous. One theorist I will quote, J.G. Uh, McQuarrie. Uh, who wrote a book called The Veil and the Mask, a book which I recommend to you if you like bloated, turgid, self-inflated theorizing <laughs> that never pauses to substantiate his pronouncements. And McQuarrie, he says, uh, he says, conspiratorial accounts of social dynamics are produced by vulgar Marxists. He further asserts that class interest is, some, is seldom a conscious matter. That's the cool position. Less cool than him was 1837, a congressperson by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And this is what Abraham Lincoln said in 1837, quote, These capitalists generally act harmoniously, that's in concert, together, and in concert, I'm sorry, they generally act harmoniously and in concert to fleece the people. Now today, Abe Lincoln would be dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. He is ascribing conscious intent to a class interest. We know that isn't the way it works, they say. Now, for some, conspiracy is, by definition, ridiculous and non-existent. But in fact, brothers and sisters, conspiracy is a very real thing. In fact, it's a concept in law. Conspiracy means people go to jail for it. It means planning or acting together in secret, especially for an unlawful or harmful purpose often with the use of illegal means. It's come to mean, in fact, any machination, plot, or concerted deception. The state's major mode of operation I have maintained in my books, Democracy for the Few, Empower, Power in the Powerless, Sword in the Dollar, Inventing Reality, the major mode of operation is systemic and legalized rather than conspiratorial. Never argue that the state maintains itself conspiratorial. No ruling interest could last long if it tried to control an entire society through the manipulations of secret cabals. At the same time, no ruling class could survive if it wasn't attentive to its own interests, consciously trying to anticipate, control, or initiate events at home and abroad, both overtly and secretly. It's hard to imagine a modern state in which there'd be no conspiracies, no plans, no machinations, deceptions, or secrecies within the circles of power. In the United States, 
there have been conspiracies aplenty. And I'll, I'll list a bunch of them. These are all now a matter of public record. In recent decades, the deliberately fabricated Tonkin Gulf incident, which served as an excuse for escalating the Vietnam War. You mean the president deliberately lied to the people to mislead the American people? And, and you're saying he had this cold conspiracy to get them all worked up for something that never happened? Yes, we now know. Yes, the Pentagon Papers are out. Yes, it was a total fabrication and a lie. Operation Phoenix, which no one heard about, in which U.S. forces set up assassination squads that murdered thousands, tens of thousands of dissidents in Vietnam. Secretly organized, illegal, immoral, unpublicized. The Watergate break-in was a conspiracy, an illegal, secret, unlawful act, followed by another conspiracy, the second one, which was the one that brought Nixon down, the Watergate cover-up. The FBI COINTELPRO, involving dirty tricks, infiltration, and harassment of left dissident groups. I remember reading the New York Times when the stories finally broke. The church committee and all that. The New York, the August New York Times said, for years, left groups have been saying that the FBI has harassing, been harassing them. And we thought it was paranoia. Now it seems to turn out that there might be some truth in it. Well, welcome to reality, New York Times. Every so often, the Times hits right on reality like that. And it's worth mentioning because it's so rare. <laughs> Iran-Contra in which executive leaders conspired to circumvent the law, secretly, illegally selling arms to Iran in exchange for funds that were then used in covert actions against Nicaragua, a conspiracy which the Joint Congressional Committee investigating Iran-Contra said we, will, we may never get, we will probably never get at the bottom of this immense conspiracy. That was, that's what they said. It wasn't some conspiracy theorists. It was these people there. We will never get at the bottom of this. Certainly not the way you guys were investigating it. You would never get at the bottom of it. The function of the investigation is to uncover some stuff to let you know that the system is self-rectifying and self-cleansing, but not uncover too much as to destabilize the, uh, the state itself. And you heard guys on the committee saying, we need a successful presidency. We must be careful what we're doing and all that. The assassinations of John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X, a matter of public record. The House Joint Committee on Assassinations uncovered the fact that there were all sorts of things. It was, it was sparse uncovering, but there have been any number of independent investigators who have uncovered the fact that these conspiracies were done not by some lone, crazed assassin who just suddenly, on an impulse, devoted six months to his life, somehow financed himself to go kill this or that leader. The CIA drugs for guns trade in Central America. Covert CIA-sponsored terrorist wars in a dozen countries. The BCCI scandal involving what some call the most crooked bank in the world. In 1990, the mother load of all conspiracies, the savings and loan, which the Justice Department, the Bush Justice Department itself said, called a thousand conspiracies of bribe, theft and fraud. A thousand conspiracies. They said we don't have enough agents to investigate it. Sure, because all the agents are checking out events like this one. Too busy keeping tabs on people who want to give, who are raising medical funds for El Salvador to go look at the savings and loan conspiracy, which is ripping off literally billions of dollars from the American taxpayer. The greatest crime 
the greatest financial crime, the greatest financial crime in the history of humanity, savings and loan. You've been living it, and you're going to pay for it where we are going to pay for it. So you might as well know about it. <laughs> Conspiracies, I maintain, are carried out regularly by the national security state. What's the national security state? It's the White House executive office. It's elements within the State Department and the Pentagon. It's the Joint Chief of Staff. It's the National Security Council, the National Security Agency, and the CIA and other intelligence agencies. That conglomeration or operational link groups in that conglomeration are what is known as the national security state. Well, it can list the Treasury at times. It can list commerce. It could, it could, it could bring in. I, I feel there are people in Congress who are linked to it. I think Sam Nunn's got one foot. I mean, you, you know, there's some uh, people like that. The national security state is involved in secretly planned operations around the globe. It resorts to low intensity warfare, special forces, undercover agents, surveillance and infiltration and destruction of dissident groups, the bribing of state leaders, unlawful break ins, the training of death squads and torturers, political assassination, counterinsurgency suppression, and terrorist military forces against revolutionary governments, as in Angola, Mozambique, and Nicaragua. Our rulers themselves explicitly call for conspiratorial activities. They publicly admit it, except they don't call them conspiracies. They call them covert action, clandestine operations, special operations, and national security. Now, if, you, if for some reason you don't want to call these undertakings conspiracies, don't call them conspiracies. Give them another name. Call them peekaboo operations. <laughs> surprise, surprise initiatives. Call them whatever you want. But recognize them for what they are, as willfully planned actions whose real intentions are almost always denied. If they're not conspiring, why all the secrecy? I'm reminded of, of uh, my friend Phil Agee. He was just here a few months ago, and I was sitting having coffee with him. He gave a talk here in Berkeley. When Phil left the uh, CIA, disillusioned, because he thought he was, uh, America was helping the world, and he found out America was doing something quite the opposite, and he left, he wrote a book called Inside the Company. The book was banned from the U.S., and I remember that. And the government said, national security is banned. And I said, well, wait a minute. The book has been published in Europe, in French, German, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese. I said, now doesn't the KGB have anyone who reads French or German? <laughs> the book was even available in English, in Canada. I said, oh, but foreign agents aren't allowed to buy books in Canada. I said to myself. <clears throat> no. The reason the ban was not, it was not intended to keep Asia's expose from foreign enemies, but from the American public. It was not national security, but the political interest of the national security state in continuing, continuing to deliberately lie and mislead the American public. As a conspiracy theory, then you tell me what was the reason for banning a book in the USA that was available everywhere else in the world. Give me the alternative reason. That's only one small instance of the many cases in which the government uses manipulative measures. The existence of the national security state also demonstrates that along with issue politics, we have class rule. In academic political science and in our news media, 
issue politics are either ignored or they're looked at in a kind of vacuum. I mean, you can get issue politics. It's in the vacuum, like this issue comes up, that issue comes up, that issue. And nothing's linked to anything else. Some political scientists I know, and I can name two very prominent ones right here at Berkeley, have studied the American presidency for 30 years and written books on the subject and never mentioned capitalism and corporate interests. I remember turning to one. We were on a panel together, Aaron Woldowski. And I said, how could you write about the American presidency for 30 years and never once mention capitalism? And he looked at me blankly. It, was, it turned out to be a rhetorical question. Now, to be sure, class interests permeate issue politics. Tax policies, subsidies to corporate investments, corporate plunder of public lands, uh, any number of kinds of uh, issues. But issue politics do not encompass the totality of a class system. Class rule is not achieved solely by pressure group politics, by interest group politics. Class rule is not achieved solely by big campaign donations, lobbyists, and other manifestations of interest group politics. Interest group politics operates within a systemic totality of power and class interest. It operates within the dynamics of a capitalist state system, which over and above the desires of any individual elites imposes its own necessities. These imperatives, these systemic imperatives are things that must be taken care of if the system is to be maintained. If value is to be extracted from the labor of the many to go into the pockets of the few, this system has to be maintained. The conditions of hegemony must constantly be refortified. And that's something that no one IBM or ITT or General Motors could do for itself. So there has to be central financing and subsidizing. There has to be regulating and cushioning competition. There has to be um, a lot of uh, new research and development that must be carried out at public cost with the benefits of it then to privatize and hand it over to corporations. There has to be transferring public domain resources into private corporate hands for their exploitation and profit. There's the absorbing into the, from the public realm, the riches go to the private realm. And then from the private realm, you absorb the diseconomies, the poverties uh, from the private sector into the public realm. The diseconomies are picked up by the public. You know, the pollution, the toxic waste dumps, all these things. We, we then have to pay for them. We have to pay the, the homeless, the helpless, whatever else. Those are things we have to pay for. There also, that system has to do something else. It has to act as the agent of class control. It has to mobilize repressive forces at home and abroad. It has to limit and repress dissent. It has to control information and manipulate opinion. This is the essence of the state. That's what the state is about. It's to act as an overarching conscious agent, a conscious agent for maintaining the entire system doing what no private interest group can do to buttress class hegemony. To put it simply, the function of the cap capitalist state is to sustain the capitalist order, and it must consciously be doing that. So for those who would deny conscious intent, we would ask, what is the function of the state? <clears throat> it pushes for privatization. One of the things it's very active doing is pushing for privatization here at home and everywhere else. In Russia, too. You see it in the papers. What are called reforms, the reformers. The media keeps talking about the reformers. Boris, buy me a drink. Yeltsin has reforms. What are the reforms about? 
The reforms are to privatize, to open up the vast riches and resources of Russia and hand them over to private foreign corporations for exploitation and big, quick profits. That's what the reforms are. It is to it is to push forth the system of capitalism. If the choice is between democracy without capitalism, we don't want it. Our leaders don't want it. That is, if it's capitalism without democracy, that's much more preferred. Ideally, what they want is capitalism with a window dressing of democracy. But democracy is a very dispensable component of that whole thing. Now, what the media, of course, is doing is associating market economy with democracy. They keep uh, putting the two together. In fact, I thought the presidential debates of, of uh, last fall, the Three Stooges Act that went on, was a very interesting thing. Because at one point, Ross Perot got up and he said, and we've got to keep uh, getting our country right and getting it straight so that we work for the... Uh, how do you say, work for uh, building democracy and capitalism. And Bill Clinton started because the guy was saying it. You see, you're not supposed to say you serve capitalism. You're supposed to say build for democracy. But Perot, who was uninitiated in these things, came out and said what it really was about. <laughs> and not necessarily in the order of importance. He said democracy and capitalism. And I, I saw the moment, I saw Clinton really start, that he would say capitalism, you see. They usually don't say that. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to author and lecturer Michael Parenti on the topic of conspiracy and class war. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. William Appleman William, another historian, description of the po power wielders in the Woodrow Wilson administration of 1918. I think it's very interesting. I want to quote it at length because it's still apt. He says, first... None of these men were naive, was naive or innocent. They very seldom blundered into either success or failure. Many more times than not, they won because they shrewdly picked their spots and deployed their power effectively. All of them, furthermore, had extended experience in business and politics. They were also men who had to come to terms with and practice the kind of routine deceptions and rationales, casuistry, that often seem to be inherent in the conduct of big business, big law, domestic politics, and diplomacy. They were not dishonest in the usual meaning of that term, and they were not hypocrites. They were simply powerful and influential men of this world who had concluded from hard experience and close observation that all of the truth all of the time was almost always dangerous. Hence, they did not use all of the truth all of the time. Secondly, these American decision makers viewed economics as of extremely great, if not of literally primary importance in the dynamic operation of the American system. This does not mean that they were motivated by personal pocketbook considerations. It means that they thought about, I, I, by the way, I think they are also motivated by personal pocketbook considerations. It's not mutually exclusive of the larger issues. <clears throat> it means that they thought about economics in a national sense 
as an absolutely crucial variable in the functioning of the system per se, and as the foundation for constitutional government and a moral society. And all of them viewed overseas economic expansion as essential to the continued successful operation of the American free enterprise system. Finally, these men shared a central conviction that the good society and the good world were defined by the forms and substance of Western civilization as they had manifested themselves in the United States. Some were conservatives concerned to preserve aspects of the status quo that they considered particularly valuable. Others were reformers more interested in improving the existing order. But all of them shared a fundamental belief in and a commitment to the established system. End of quote. Now, it's understood that coal miners might consciously direct efforts toward advancing their interests, and steel workers, and small farmers, and school teachers, but not these elites, at least according to the innocence theorists. Now, of course, coal miners and steel workers publicly uh, push for their goals because they're trying to enlist the support of other publics, <clears throat> broader publics. Corporate heads, plutocrats, network owners, policy elites tend to move more quietly, less visibly, through the corridors of power, preferring not to stir too much public attention. At other times, by the way, they will actually seek to mobilize public sentiment in a particular direction. For instance, in the mid-1970s, we had a very interesting development. Business leaders showed an increasingly class-conscious concern for the drift of things in the mid-70s. One corporate leader spoke to his concurring colleagues at a meeting of the conference board in 1974. I quote him, the have-nots are gaining steadily. The have-nots are gaining steadily more political power to distribute the wealth downward. The masses have turned to a larger government. This isn't Lenin talking. This is a, a corporate elite, unquote. Another top executive concurred. He said, quote, if we don't take action now, we will see our own demise. We will evolve into another social democracy, meaning like Sweden and, and Denmark or something like that. This is the research done by Leonard Silk and David Vocal. Uh, Silk, a, a former economics business writer for the New York Times, wrote this. That's a very quite, quite conscious and explicit awareness of their class interests, speaking in, in explicit class terms here. Not to the public. They don't say that when they come on the air, but when they talk to each other, it's remarkable what they say. What they wanted was outlined, by the way, very explicitly. There's no conspiracy. They concerted, they planned, but it was right out there, out in the public, very explicitly in major business publications from the mid-1970s onward. A cutback in government spending, massive cutbacks, government spending in human services. They wanted an increase in military spending. They, want, they wanted generous tax write-offs and credits for upper-income individuals and corporations. And they wanted a rollback of government regulations on business. That's what they wanted. Giant corporations like Citibank, IBM, Morgan Guaranteed Trust, Exxon, Ford, and General Motors played an increasingly active and conscious role in financing conservative think tanks like the Hoover Institute, American Enterprise Institute, and seeing that a conservative business agenda got penetrated the academic circles and mass media. You saw in the 70s a mass array, an array of conservative pundits and columnists moving into the media, uh, and they still clutter up that media today. 
corporate money financed the campaigns of ideologically conservative candidates through political action committees and the corporations devoted much more systematic effort to breaking labor unions. By 1978, some of the changes that corporate America wanted were already being instituted by the president himself, a Democrat named Jimmy Carter. He started cuts in human services. He started increasing military spending. Uh, the Clausens were right. Uh, the Clausens wrote an article, which they called it, Reagan, Reaganism before Reagan. I was calling it that then, too. I said, we got <coughs> Carter gave us Reaganism before Reagan. But there were problems with Carter because he was partially beholden to labor unions, the African-American vote, you know. And what, the, what corporate America wanted was an unencumbered ideological conservative, and their support went overwhelmingly to Ronald Reagan. Now, they were lobbying for issue politics, but not just issue politics. They were trying to shift the center of political gravity of the entire policy arena in order to maintain class rule and avoid a social democracy that might cut too deeply into their privileges, wealth, and class power. And they succeeded quite well. The innocence theorists will sometimes acknowledge that there is fault, that some people do some bad things. But when they do, they place responsibility on everyone, on an undifferentiated we. Richard Nixon saying, what a strange creature man is that he fouls his own nest. He's saying, we, we are all the polluters. Eric Fromm once said, we produce cars. What? We produce cars with built-in obsolescence and dangers. We continue to pollute the environment. An alternative radio commentator uh, on a show I was on announced in 1991, we're all guilty of John Kennedy's death. We're all guilty of the Gulf War. I said, no, we aren't. <clears throat> the innocence theorists can get quite specific about conscious intent and conspiracy if it comes from the left. If it involves militant dissenters, labor unions, leftist guerrillas, peace demonstrators, or leaders of communist forces, then intent is readily subscribed then it's rec recognized that people will actually be fighting for particular agendas to push certain things. In fact, very sinister intent. The FBI, you remember, looking at the nuclear freeze movement that was sweeping America and charging that it was KGB directed. Now, there was a bunch of conspiracy theorists right there. But the innocence theorists didn't turn to them and say, oh, you kooky conspiracy theorists. They said, uh, could there be KGB uh, agents or not? You know, they treated that as a, as a serious proposition. It's recognized that revolutionaries are capable of conspiracy. There are even laws against them. That revolutionaries are capable of concerted action directed toward consciously desired goals, but not counter-revolutionaries. Peace advocates, but not militarists and interventionists. Proponents of change, but not champions of the status quo. The poor, but not the rich. Nothing said here, by the way, is meant to imply that ruling class leaders are infallible or omnipotent. That's the straw man that's always put up in the, in the literature and the debates we have and say, these people would say that there are these, this cabal of people, they make no mistakes, they're infallible, they consciously know everything, they, they do everything. Nobody's saying they're infallible. Nobody says they're, 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 they're limitless in their power. Despite the immense resources at their command, they, they're sometimes limited in their options by circumstances beyond their control, by pressures from within the economic system. They have divisions among themselves about tactics, about what's going to be more effective or what isn't. They're, 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 uh, they have pressures for the need to maintain legitimating, legitimating democratic appearances by their fear of angry and mass popular resistance, sometimes, sometimes. 
But whatever the limits of their power, these ruling elites are as fervently involved in class struggle as any communist. And if they don't always succeed, they succeed often enough. They may not be omnipotent, but they're enormously powerful. They're far from infallible, but they have such a plentitude of resources as to do sufficient damage control and minimize their losses when mistakes are made, unlike us sometimes. One of the, one of the characteristics of innocence theory is that you never ask why. Why are certain things done? And that even happens on the left. See, the essence of political analysis is two things. One, you analyze the impact of policies and situations, what happens, long-range immediate effects and outputs. The other thing is you try to determine intent. When, uh, some, a few years ago when I was teaching a graduate seminar at Brooklyn College in New York, I had Walter Karp come and talk to my class. Walter Karp wrote a very wonderful book, Liberty Under Siege, and he's written other books too, Politics of War. I asked him, have you ever been accused of being conspiracy theorist? Uh, because you're, you're placing intent. You're saying that Reagan is doing these things and limiting democracy because this, that, the other thing. And he said, all the time I'm fighting against the charge that I'm a propagator of the elders of the protocol, uh, you know. Uh, he said, but the essence of political analysis is to try to define, define and divine intent. That's what you have to be looking at. And yet there's so many exposés that are written that never even deal with it. We read about environmental devastation. We read about the uh, terrible effects of U.S. intervention in Panama or in Nicaragua or Cuba or here or there. But why? Why is U.S. policy doing this? Why are they doing these things? We read about costly military bases. There's a very interesting book on that. The Sun Never Sets, how the U.S. has these glow bases all over the world. Why do they have this? Not mentioned. They talk about the costliness of it, the violation of the sovereignty of the countries involved, this, that, the other thing. But why? Why do they find this necessary? What are the interests involved? So we have even writing on the left where people don't ask why. We learn not to ask why, because once you ask why, then you cross the line from a liberal complaint into a radical analysis. Then you are talking or have to talk about something or you have to start doing all those other ephemeral explanations. Oh, Bush is doing this because he's got a macho problem. That's why he invaded Panama. Or, oh, we're doing this because uh, we like to feel big. Or, or we, we, we're just kooky that way. Or uh, th These become the explanations. It's the same with U.S. foreign policy. We hear again and again, U.S. policy is so foolish, so stupid. Why did we go in there? It's so stupid. Why are we doing that? Just because you don't understand what they're doing doesn't mean they don't understand what they're doing. And never is it asked, what is the intent? Without understanding intent, indeed, U.S. policy remains an unsettling mystery, a puzzling thing to liberal critics. But such policy is really rational and quite successful. It consistently moves against any nation or social movement that tries to change the client-state relations of U.S. dominance and imperialism, that tries to use a greater portion of its natural resources, markets, and labor for self-development moves that would infringe upon the upon the interests of rich investors now if taken in the larger context u.s policy appears consistent and sensible and predictable and and mostly successful but most media analysts and academic analysts lack this larger context even most alternative media analysts once we realize these things about u.s policy we move as i say from a liberal complaint about how rational 
the policy is to a radical analysis about the rational interests involved and how a particular policy coincides with similar U.S. policies all over the world for decades, supporting privileged interests against popular movements. This isn't a conspiracy fantasy. It's a conspiracy actuality to conclude that U.S. leaders were not interested in reaching a peaceful accord, that they were lying about their real intentions to the American public and even to their own staffs. Well, isn't this just a demonization of ruling elites? I mean, you have a demon theory about them the way they have about you. No, it's not demon theory. They see me and people like me as a real mortal enemy to their class interest. They're absolutely correct. It's not a kooky theory. They're right about me. I'm right about them. You're listening to author and lecturer Michael Parenti. The topic, conspiracy and class power. Are they really capable of supporting death squads, assassinations, tortures, uh, violent deeds like this? I mean, you know, you're talking about Yale, Princeton, Harvard graduates here. <laughs> I remember speaking to a former CIA. Uh, actually, he's been in the, o- the OSS and he'd gone to the CIA in the early years under, under Wild Bill Donovan. He was in the administration at Yale University when I was back there for postdoctoral. And I remember him saying, Well, Michael... Oh, talking. Well, you know, it's not a pretty world out there. We have to sometimes do things that aren't very pretty because we're facing some very nasty individuals. So we have to, we're compelled to do this. If the politics of the world were like politics in the U.S., we wouldn't have to do it. They're pretty dirty in the U.S. too. So they have it all rationalized. But the evidence does come out. Yes, they are capable of such things. Even Congress the last to know. I always think of Congress as the deceived spouse. You know? They're always, they're always the last to know. Do you remember during the Iran-Contra hearings, the Republican senators who got up, Senator Cohn of Maine, Senator Rudman of Vermont, they got up and said, I thought we were intervening in Nicaragua because we were interdicting the uh, arms that they were sending to El Salvador. I mean, those guys really believed that reason. When Gene Kirkpatrick and Schultz and Reagan gave that reason. I said, boy, they're Boy Scouts. You read history. I'm, I, that's, that's stuff I was doing on Spanish-American. Well, same thing. These senators are getting up. They really believe the reasons that are given by the White House. At least they give every appearance of believing. But Congress eventually, some elements in Congress, catch on. A very unusual member of Congress, Robert Torricelli. Tor- Torricelli. Torricelli, head of the Torricelli Bill against Cuba. Yeah, you can hiss, but on this issue, somehow, you see, Torricelli sponsors that bill because he actually thinks that Cuba's a bad place and a danger and we've got to democratize it. He really thinks that's what it is. So then he finds out what the U.S. was doing in El Salvador. And he says, Washington Post, March 17, 93, the chairman of a House subcommittee, Robert Torricelli, Democrat of New Jersey, charged yesterday that the Reagan administration lied to Congress for years about the Salvadoran Armed Forces' complicity in murder. And he said, quote, every word uttered by every Reagan administration official about the observances of human rights in El Salvador should be reviewed for perjury. Torricelli went on. 
it is now abundantly clear that Ronald Reagan made these certifications about human rights in defiance of the truth. Welcome to reality, Congressman. <clears throat> I just finished doing an investigation of the death of an American president. He died in 1850, Zachary Taylor. I wrote an article called History as Mystery, uh, the strange death of President Zachary Taylor. In 1991, his tomb was opened and they investigated it because some historians, was, one historian was suspicious that he had actually been poisoned. And they came out with a report that he wasn't poisoned, he died of natural causes. Well, I got the reports and started looking at them more closely and found all sorts of funny things. That the arsenic level in him was 15 times higher than the normal level in a person walking around. That the antimony level in him, uh, antimony level in him was, was vastly higher, was uh, 50, 60 times higher. Antimony is a, is a poison, uses a poison even a higher toxicity than arsenic, uh, and a bunch of other things. And so I wrote this whole article. And one of the quotes I came across was by a historian, Eugene Genovese. He was asked by the press, would any political protagonist in the United States of 1850 be capable of such a deed? Taylor, you see, was opposing the slave power. He refused to have any extension of slavery. He was holding a hard line against any extension of slavery into the Western territories. And there was a lot of hard feeling against him about this. And when he died, Millard Fillmore came in and the policy immediately shifted. Total change in policy. The Compromise of 1850 came in. The slave powers got all they want. The of slave laws were strengthened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into any more particulars. But that's what it was about. There was a real political interest involved. And Genovese says, I can't imagine any Southern personalities who would have been involved in such a conspiracy. Now, it's an interesting thing when you make these kind of statements because it's a reflection of you. It's a reflection of, of how moderate and decent you are when you say, I can't imagine this kind of crazy thing happening. If you can imagine this kind of crazy thing happening, this sort of begins to raise some question about your credibility, you see. Because <laughs> I can't imagine there couldn't be anybody involved in such a conspiracy. He goes on, he says, but there's always the possibility that there were some nuts who had access to him and did it. Well. I want to say that history shows us that nuts are not the only ones capable of evil deeds. That gentlemen of principle and power of genteel manner can arrive at very grim decisions. If they commit crimes, it's not because they harbor murky and perverse impulses, but because they feel compelled to deal with the dangers that oppose to their way of life. This doesn't mean that they're motivated by, by, by purely financial reasons, although that's a very real consideration, I think. But they equate their vital interests with the well-being of their society and their nation. In this case, with the well-being of the cause of Southern rights. And far from being immoral or unscrupulous, they are individuals of principles that are so lofty as to elevate them above the restraints of ordinary morality. They don't, they don't act on sudden impulse. The feeling grows among them that something must be done, something that's best for all, that the situation is becoming intolerable. They move gradually toward the position. The change is gradual, and yet it's so compelling that when they arrive at their decision, they're no longer shocked by the extreme measures they're willing to employ. The execution of the unsavory deed is made all the easier by delegating its commission to uh, lower-level operatives. Most of the evil 
Most of the evil in history is perpetrated not by lunatics or monsters or lone psychotics, but by persons of responsibility and commitment whose most unsettling aspect is the apparent normality of their deportment. It's like child molesters we're finding, saying there's danger in the stranger. It's not the stranger we find out are the child molesters and the abusers. It's not some guy who goes around like this with drool coming down like this. It's the, uh, in many cases, upright, estimable gentlemen of the community who no one could believe would do such thing. I want to point out that the social order itself is not without intent. That you can think of a social order operating with immense impersonality and yet it too has intent. I had a friend years ago who was a nurse. And when she was trained as a nurse, she had three patients and she did very well with these patients. She had a real knack for it. She talked to them. And that's a good part of the healing process, you know, their feelings and all that. And she really ha- liked her work. And then she went to work in a hospital and she's the only one. She was the only nurse on the whole ward. She had 25 to 30 patients and nobody can take care of 25 to 30 patients. And what begins to happen after a while, she gets irritated and angry. And she starts to get annoyed and feeling that they're wanting to be pampered and all that and, and getting very curt with the patient, acting like a nurse. So what you see here is the patients are ascribing this behavior to her personality, when in fact it's behavior that's the result of a structured situation that's beyond her control, which is too many patients to take care of. But there's something more to that story. The hospital is run by a bunch of rich directors and profiteers. They make the decision to maximize their profits. They cut down on staff. The more you cut down on staff, the more you increase your rate of exploitation per person you've employed. And they do away. If I can get one person to do the work of three, that increases my profits. So that board of directors, which drew huge salaries and extracted large profits for the corporate shareholders at a hospital, were very much involved in that paradigm between nurse and patient. You know, Marx and Freud have very little in common, but one thing they do have in common is this idea that human behavior is often prefigured by forces that are removed from the immediate situation. For Freud, it was all our hidden agendas and uh, our family and our parents and all that. For Marx, it's the social situation, the class structure, the institutions, the culture, and those kinds of things, which are operating in ways we don't see. It's the nature of our culture that we don't see it. And we immediately ascribe it to some immediate psychological or personality component of the other person. It's not that the directors of that hospital, by the way, took pleasure in overworking the nursing staff and seeing them hassled and irritable. I mean, quite the contrary. They'd want a a staff that's pleasant to the patients. But, but, but different institutional arrangements evoke different forms of behavior. The fact that a dispirited workforce is unintentional does not mean there is no interested power involved. The fact that it's unintentional, that effect, doesn't mean there aren't in, are not intentions working to get some kind of effect there. In other words, institutional arrangements may have unintended effects, but if the arrangements are serving explicit interests, how really unintended are the effects? And you want to see, by the way, when those interests are threatened, it's impressive how conscious intention suddenly can be mobilized in situations where conscious intention supposedly plays no role. This applies to the debate that's going on right now about the JFK 
assassination conspiracy. That there are people who are saying that we shouldn't get hung up on conspiracies. We should be looking at the larger institutional forces. And what I am arguing is that those larger institutional forces are directed by conscious human agency. And those agencies use conspiracy or non-conspiracy. They use conspiratorial forces or non-conspiratorial forces. And that the conspiratorial forces are important. They're not rare exceptions. And that they are systemic in their nature and in their output. There are those who said that, um, uh, yeah, so three-fourths of the American people believe that John Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. So what? Three-fourths of the American people, Coburn's made this argument, Chomsky's made this argument to me, three-fourths of the American people believe in miracles, too. Well, there's a, that's a very facile argument. It's a confusion. They're confusing the gullibility about miracles with the public's refusal to be gullible about the story that the officials are handing down to them about how Kennedy was killed. It's quite different. So what I would say is... What I would say to uh, our friends is that we ought not to patronize the public. We, we ought to educate ourselves about the actualities of that murder and about every other conspiracy that goes on. We ought to see not we should not dismiss these conspiracies as distractions from the bigger picture, but see how they are an essential part of the bigger picture. The concern with conspiracy and assassination is not a manifestation of Camelot yearnings. It's not a search for lost messiahs or father figures. It's not an immature, kooky idea. It is the angry realization that state power is used in gangster ways by gentlemen gangsters who defend imperialism and the national security state. Concern about these issues is not gullibility. It's not irrational yearnings for lost leaders, uh, but it's an expression of public concern about the nature of our government. The expression of public concern about the nature of our government, the angry criticism, there's a, there's a name for that. And that is called democracy, and let's have more of it. Thank you very much. That was noted lecturer and author Michael Parenti on the topic of conspiracy and class power. This lecture was given back in 1993 at Berkeley, California in front of an overflowing audience. The complete lecture can be found on YouTube by simply clicking Conspiracy and Class Power. That's it for this week. Tune in next week for more on the COVID situation. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.